I stare down at Mike. She's not moving, but her pain permeates the air. Distress, anguish and fear. And there's something that troubles her even beyond her wounds. The metal shell has grown back now and her organic interior is healing relatively well. Is there anything I can do to help? I say to a Viatorian woman outside of the healer's yurt. She looks me up and down. Can you use that? She gestures to the spirit at my side. Somewhat, I reply. Go out and hunt. She points towards the mesa. Head that way for four hours and then head towards the minor sun. You'll reach some rich hunting grounds. Food is scarce. We need something to give these bandits. The proposition of just giving up upsets me. I'd seen this happen many times before, Forest Minor being the most recent. Having spent a bit of time there, I began to recognize the kind of person it takes to coerce and steal in this way. I'll find a way to stop them, I promise. With the weapons they have, we can't all be immortal. I grab some water and a long piece of cloth to wrap around my head to keep cool and start walking. My ribs ache as I walk and so I begin to consider the weapon that the masked woman carried to distract myself. A laser rifle. An actual fucking laser rifle. Like something out of an old sci-fi story. The idea seems so fantastical to me, like hover cars or pills that you take instead of eating. I mean, sure, on a big enough hypercruiser or an Alcasat, but research into handheld energy weapons had been discarded hundreds of years ago. And yet, I watched my friend get hit with one. I've been walking towards the Mesa in the far distance for an hour or so when I come across another town. This one far more built up than Vestak Cry. The tallest building is around three stories high. It's wide and round and built out of the engine of a mega hauler or something of a similar size. It casts a shadow on the rest of the village, with a roof of plastic sheeting pulled taut across. The rest of the town surrounds this centerpiece, densely packed due to the trench that defines the border of the town. There must be about 150 separate settlements, all huddled around that central building. I circle round to the entrance, the large metal gates lay open. As I walk over the makeshift bridge, the smell of rot and decay suddenly becomes very intense. I look over into the ditch and see that there are several bodies laying at the bottom, many with gunshot wounds in the back of the head, with large, singed portions of their body missing. In the town, the walls and all the buildings are marked with large gashes and bullet holes. Every so often a blackened streak will appear, or a hole through several buildings lets the wind whistle through it. More bodies litter the town, the killing blow is less methodical as some of them clutch lengths of iron rebar or other makeshift weapons grabbed in a moment of panic. Silence is relative. You may think where you are is quiet, but if you listen closely, there will always be the sound of a vehicle or the wind blowing lightly. In concert halls, after a powerful song ends, the space is deathly quiet, even as the last waves created by the instruments reverberate around the room. The same is with this town. There is no silence. The wind blows and the buildings settle, yet as to what must have been a loud and bustling organism made up of hundreds of people who all knew each other's names and lives, all with individual stories that converge on this one point. Might as well be a burial chamber, forgotten and lost. The hollowed out engine is a market from what I can gather. All along the circumference and in the core of it, stalls are strewn about. Small and yet useless trinkets scatter the ground with the more useful and valuable items stolen. On the front entrance to the market, there is a trahadal, strung up from the iron bars which keep the plastic roof in place. 
could only be a few weeks since he was killed. His small black eyes are sunken and faded with decay, and his small, many-toothed maw hangs open. His rubbery pale skin hugs tightly to his skeleton as the flesh rots from within. Hung from his neck is a black banner with the white insignia of a six-spoked wheel run through with a sword. Above this, the words, unto humanity only, are inscribed in an ancient human language, not spoken since the old days of humanity, before the council. I leave the town and begin a long arc back to Vestak Cry, hoping to cover as much ground as possible in the hopes of not returning empty-handed. And so I once more march into the wilderness. There's a large pool of water just ahead of me. Some creature drinking from it causes ripples to emanate from its long and toothy snout. It is hunched down on six legs, and its long, flowing feathers ripple in the light breeze. I extend my spear, and it raises its head reflexively. A pair of ears shoot into the air, and it tenses up. It goes to run, but stops. Something slowly snakes up its legs, and at first I think it's some kind of eel from the water, or a serpent of some kind. But then I realise that the vines are pulling the creature into the water. It calls out, thrashing in futile desperation. The tips of the vines pierce its skin, and it falls still. Its large black eyes lose their depth and go hazy, and it allows itself to be pulled into the bottom of the pond. Completely astounded, and with my spear pointed downwards in front of me, I cautiously approach the edge of the pond. The water still ripples, and I peer down into its depths. I can't see the bottom, neither due to its murkiness or depth, I can't tell. A moan calls from behind me, and I spin around, my spear raised. A smaller but much angrier looking version of the beast I watch get devoured is hunched down. It has less feathers than the other, and is armed with a large set of chipped horns and long, curved teeth. It charges, and I stumble to the side, narrowly avoiding getting run through. It gracefully turns around, goes for another charge, and I thrust the spear at its eye, missing, and instead adding another nick to its horns. On its third charge, I drop to the ground, and brace the end of my spear into the earth as it gores itself on the force of its own charge. I push up and forward against its ribs to keep it away from the edge of the water, from which more vines smoothly snake outwards. It stumbles away. I twist the ring on my spear, and it electrifies. The beast cries out, and its muscles tense up. While it's still stunned, I pull out the blade and drive it up through its jaw and into the skull. It collapses, and the vines begin to withdraw. Back at Vestak Cry, I drag my blood-soaked cloth, filled with the chopped-up creature, to the centre of town. I leave it next to a plastic barrel filled with fresh water and a large bushel of herbs, a meagre offering from a town whose value comes from the intellectual realm rather than the physical. Mike is still unconscious when I go to check on her. Two attendees surround her, sitting and staring into space, waiting for an improvement. Surely she should be better by now, I say impatiently to the Dorian closest to me. He blinks twice. One lid covering a whole bulging eye from the bottom and then opening again. They don't talk. Vowel sounds. A large half sits in a rocking chair and is sprinkling some substance into their liquid-filled breathing apparatus. That's a good thing if you ask me. Warians have a natural sense of superiority. Just because they're amphibious. It's obnoxious. Well, I ask. My attention shifting to the aquatic humanoid. She's taking her time. That weapon the human carried really did a number on her. That ain't no usual firearm. Seems magical. He looks me up and down. You're fixing for an explanation, huh? I nod. Suppose I can try to provide some illumination. 
People like us come here to be isolated. We are just a small fragment of who lives here. Most came here by accident. Except us, that is. This planet is uniquely situated so that it don't appear on any maps and cannot be discovered by conventional means. How is that possible? He shrugs. Maybe the mineral makeup of the planet? Perhaps some ancient artifact buried deep within some hidden temple just waiting for you to get it. He says sarcastically and then laughs. <laughs> we could spend hours speculating. Point is that because of this phenomenon, there are lots of people on this rock who would rather not be. People who had no good reason for being out this far away from the hubs of the galaxy if you catch my drift. Ah. Anyone trying to keep out of council-monitored widening field routes by using backway lanes and jump points, mixed with a planet that doesn't show up on scanners, gets you a bunch of unsavory types on the same planet as other vulnerable and lost people, which is never good. He points up at one of the mesas in the far distance, the green mess of the vines gradually becoming more sparse. The group that those humans are a part of, they came here about four months ago, and they've already set up base out of the ship they came here on. They're not here on accident, and they don't want to be found. When they got here, we thought nothing of it, but then they started expanding outwards. The nearest village, Zapirian. Well, humans aren't exactly known for their peaceful nature. No offense. None taken. I say, my eyes fixed on might. And the vines? I ask. What about them? He says, surprised at my asking. They cover every square inch of the ground. Everywhere I go, it grows incredibly densely. It doesn't behave like a plant should. Aren't there any Vitamancers here? Surely they'd know something about it. The only vitamacy that gets here is by our amphibious friend here. He points at the Dorian who looks absently at the horizon. Hey, Bidu. Dorian doesn't flinch. The Hasman picks up a chunk of whatever substance he was filtering into his breathing apparatus and flicks it at the Dorian, who starts and looks at the Hass with visible confusion on their scaled face. You've got a vow of silence, but not a vow of not listening. The vines. Bedil shrugs. What do you expect me to do? I'll know. Mime it or something. They raise their hands and scrunch up their face at the ridiculousness of the idea, but go to try and explain anyway. They look me in the eyes and put their hand on the ground, tugging at the vines. Then they motion in the shape of the sphere. Uh, the planet? The vines cover the whole planet. They give me a thumbs up. They hold up a single claw and put their fingers to their temples and draw them away, splaying out their hands and widening their eyes as they do so. One... dream? One... explosion? They turn to the Hasman and gesture, Hey, I tried. Well... That was unhelpful and confusing. Bedil does another gesture that I don't recognize, but I assume is some expletive. If you don't mind me asking... The Hasman says, taking a deep breath from his breathing tube which sits around his neck. What's the deal with you two? Be in bed, you reckon you're ex-lovers or something? It's not like that, I say. Well, what is it like? I pause. Nothing quite describes it, really. No one else in the whole universe had been through what we had been through and lived in the way we had. It's more like we're siblings, sort of. <sighs> I've got plenty of siblings. Some 400. But Mama always said I was a special one. <laughs> so, 
How'd you become acquainted then? It's a long story. I've got time. No. It starts at the beginning of life itself in the universe, so you really don't. Fair enough. He grumbles. Sorry, but aren't you more worried about the Anthronesians, not how I met Might? Everything is as it was ever going to be. The Jordian rolls their eyes. Aren't you more worried about Matt? He asks. I mean, sure, but I just have to be patient. She'll heal in time. Not her wounds, kid. He says, but then realizes how ridiculous he looks, calling someone hundreds of thousands of years old, kid. <sighs> Can you not see it? Oh, right. Something's eating at her. She ain't been right for the past few weeks. We can all see it. Surprised you can't. It's been such a long time since I've seen her, I just assumed this is how she is now. I... I don't know. Mike begins to stir. A deep black sphere appears above her forehead, and the air around her starts to shiver. See? I say, moving over to her. If she's still having visions, it can't be that bad. This ain't like usual. Something's wrong. A thin line of black emerges from her eyes like tears streaming up into the air, and they make contact with the sphere of light hovering above her. The world suddenly turns black, and I feel myself brought into her mind. I'm in a small cave. The walls are made of dark strings which splay outwards, through the thick tangle I see the shape of some huge creature move around and snake up and over my head, settling behind Might, who stands at the other end, the tangle of thin lines emanating from behind her. She stands with her hands out, strings wrapped and tangled between her fingers. Adam, she says, her voice travelling along the threads. We have little time. Eden, you need to get there first to the start The dark shadow appears behind her, but neither of us react, as if we had known of its presence long before it arrived. She pulls down a thread, plucks it, and watches the vibrations travel away from her. To leave this place, you must go to the Amphalusians. They have a dissimulation field. They're hiding something. Uncover it. She points, and I know where she means. On top of the mesa. The shadow places a pale hand on her shoulder, and the lights in her body around where he grips change into a polychromatic haze, glowing brightly. After that, you don't need to worry. Your path will become clear. Yeah, sure, I'll be totally calm. She gestures the equivalent of a melancholy smile with her hands, the depth to her feeling lost on me due to my limited perception of the light spectrum. The shadow grows larger. If this doesn't work, will you visit the others? I'm sure they'd like to see you. Well, most of them, anyway. If what doesn't work? A haze of rapidly shifting light completely engulfs her body as she draws her sword, pulling the threads wrapped around her fingers down, untangling many of the knots that provide the ceiling and walls with structure. She spins and swings the blade in an upward motion, cutting up the shadow's chest and severing a few threads in the process. An angry mist of polychrome energy bursts from the wound, singeing more threads and severing them. The shadow hatefully grabs Mike by the mask and throws her to the ground. Unfazed, she jabs the sword into his forearm and pulls it back towards her. The shadow recoils in shock and Mike rolls back onto her feet. The darkness around the shadow dissipates, and for the first time I see Ovig Nadal in his true, intolerable and impossible form. From his eyeless head which hangs on a long, stooped neck, a set of white horns wriggle and writhe violently like maggots, and impossibly, and most distressingly, they are simultaneously still. Two sets of wings protrude out from his back, long and bowed, 
The edges of his body shiver and shudder as he moves seven echoes of his motions follow like ghosts, each in a different colour of the light spectrum. His wide and smiling jaw hangs open as he pants, polychrome gas rising from his gullet with each deep breath. This same gas drips in liquid form from his fresh wound. He is surrounded by an ashy substance which is the same pallid colour as his skin. His presence emanates outwards, in defiance of the universe, and he holds out his slender, clawed hand, as if presenting the damage to us. His form refuses to hold a consistent shape. Undoubtedly, Might is witnessing a separate horror. However, despite the shifting form, my eyes sting with tears nonetheless. The image of this edgeless horror is known to me. It has festered in the back of my mind since Eden, as it is in all of humanity. All generations proceeding from me are instilled with a fear of him. The impact of my actions seared his image deep into the collective unconscious. I seek only to free you. As he speaks, the matter of which he appears to be made of begins to flake, and the ashy substance fills the air even thicker than before. You are an alien in this universe, Mike says, and in this of all realms you have even less grasp of your place. You're more of concept than of being, but even ideas can be laid to rest and quelled. I banish you. You who would seek to revoke and undo, my mind will not be a battleground for you. So fuck off. The last of the ash dissipates, and the black threads fade to blue, and then into nothing. And we now stand in a large and empty space, in which there is the true nothing. That's better. She says, and I awaken to the sight of the Dorian and Hass standing over me. You okay, kid? The Hass asks me. Yeah, I'm good. What was that about? Vision realm, extra-dimensional creature that possessed Might, but it's fine now. The two look at each other, and then back to me. Fair enough. Might rouses from her sleep as I'm pulled to my feet. Not want to waste time, she speaks before I can. That was weird, huh? What was that move all about? I don't know, I just suddenly felt that was what I was meant to do. It felt so right. So he's why your visions were different then? I guess so, but I'm not sure why he didn't just possess me outright. It's like something was keeping him from completely taking over. I didn't think anything could stop his will. She turns to me, serious now. If you want to deactivate the dissimulation field, you're going to have to go now. No goodbyes? We'll see each other again. I'm sure. Do you know that, or are you just being sentimental? We're immortal. The odds are that eventually we'll run into each other. She roots through one of her pockets. Take this, for your little bag of tricks. She holds out a small bronze sphere, covered in seams and edges. Is this? I ask. Yeah. She answers. Holy shit. This is so rare. I don't know if I'll feel right using it. Farewell, Adam. Farewell, Might Upon Serenity. We refrain from using each other's curse names. I turn and head in the direction of the Mesa, with a simple mission in mind, and a trust that my friend will guide me well. Viatorian Woman, played by Emmy Coates. Hassman, played by David M. Sledge. Might Upon Serenity, played by Francis Gillard. Ovig Nadal, played by Glyn Pritchard. Adam Delta 5, writing and sound design, all by Kai Gwillem Pritchard. If you're looking for other audio dramas, I can highly recommend The Green Horizon. It's a sci-fi comedy drama that focuses on a ne'er-do-well Irish captain and his ragtag crew as they traverse a war-torn galaxy in search of fame and fortune. There'll be a link in the description, so go check it out now. Follow the podcast on Twitter at Chain of Being. 
email us at chainofbeingofficial at gmail.com for inquiries and stuff. Cover art by Kai Gwillem Pritchard. Thanks for listening.